Hi, my name is Ebony Joy. Welcome to Solidarity Economy Shorts, a collaboration between New Economy Coalition and Cooperative Journal Media. Solidarity Economy Shorts are conversations with frontline organizations and individuals that are putting solidarity economy principles into practice. They're using different strategies to build an economic system where communities are meeting their own needs outside of capitalism. New Economy Coalition is a membership representing the solidarity economy ecosystem in the United States. Their members are actively working across economic sectors to shift from individuality and capitalism to cooperation and solidarity. Some of the New Economy members will be featured on this podcast to explore topics like land justice, cooperation, arts and culture, resource mobilization, and more. We'll share lessons learned, practices, and how you can engage in this liberatory vision. As you listen, you're invited to feel into your body. When do you sense constriction? When do you feel light and expansive? We hope these shorts can be a reminder that we don't have to wait for the future we dream of. It is here now, waiting for us to participate. Nuns and Nuns is a community of sisters and seekers who connect to explore the themes of justice, spiritual practice, and how to respond to the needs of the times. The Land Justice Project evolved to support these religious communities to reimagine and shift who has ownership and access to the land they are on. In this episode, I speak with Brittany Cotellis, the director of the project. She begins with laying a foundation for what land justice is and how the Land Justice Project embodies it through its models and practices. She shares when and why land even became commodified, how the aging community of nuns is navigating mistrust and contradictions that emerge when giving Catholic-owned land to Native American and Black people. And we end with how you can engage in land justice. Hi, Brittany. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm so looking forward to sharing with the listeners about Nuns and Nuns. And because this episode will be focused on land and why it is such a critical component to the movement towards greater solidarity. We're going to start with some definitions to demystify this uh, movement that is starting to happen around land back, land justice, and land rematriation. So if you can define let's start with land justice because i see that as like an umbrella term for uh what falls under which is land back and land rematriation so if you want to break those down i mean with all of these i I come to any grasping at definition with a lot of humility i think there's 
Um, you know, you can ask 10 people and probably get 10 definitions. But I think the the way that I think about land justice is centering healing in decisions about how land is loved and used and governed, both the healing of the earth, ecological healing, and also healing of relationships and generational trauma that's been created by systems of oppression. So um yeah, it's it's really a centering of racial justice and social justice in the decisions that are made about land while also prioritizing the healing of the land herself. Um, when we go deeper in educating landowners about what that really looks like, we talk about um, land justice having three sort of pieces, three technical parts, uh, protecting the land from extraction regenerating the health of the land and expanding equity and access and relationship with land to people who have been historically dispossessed of land. Um, so that's like a more like, what is the doing of land justice? And then uh, another definition of, yeah, what's the feeling of land justice? Do you also want to talk a bit about land back and maybe a lesser used term of land rematriation? Yeah. So under under the the umbrella of land justice, I feel like the terms that we use the most often are we talk about land reparations uh, and then land back and land rematriation, which have some relationship to each other, but uh, feel a little different. Um Land reparations are the restoring of relationship to land to people to whom reparations are owed. Uh, most often that's talking about restoring land ownership and relationship to black people. Um, and in other contexts can mean can mean other things, but it's restoring relationship to land because justice is owed. Um, and then land back is uh probably the most commonly used term for the return of land to indigenous hands, um, the return of native land to, to native people. Um, and a term that's being used more kind of in the same way is rematriation. Uh, Michelle Shenandoah, who is an Oneida woman, um, uses this definition of rematriation that I love, which is returning the mother to herself. Um, and I just love that because I think it gets, it's not just the physical like transaction of land to indigenous hands or to indigenous women's stewardship um, as rematriation is often used, but it's in doing that also the, the deeper healing and return that happens when the land gets to come back into relationship with the ways of stewardship and relating that it knew for that the land knew for thousands and thousands of years. And so I love to think of rematriation and all of this work of land justice as, you know, a process that's happening in many directions, not just a title that's getting moved from one person to the other. Thank you so much for breaking that down. And yeah, I also love how the term land rematriation connects to how the people that are 
going back into right relationship and stewarding the land are having this interconnected uh, relationship with it and thinking of it outside of its commodification, which it has become. And that's something that we'll get into a little bit after as well. But with these different threads, and now that you've laid the foundation of what we what may be surfaced in this conversation, how does nuns and nuns relate to land justice? What is it? Yeah, so uh, I am part of the Nuns and Nuns Land Justice Project, and we started this work a couple of years ago. There's a larger movement called Nuns and Nuns that um, started six years ago um, that really was a much broader endeavor to bring Catholic sisters, nuns, together with uh, artists and activists who were spiritual community builders as well, many of whom who didn't identify or affiliate with a religion. So uh, then we get the nickname the nuns because many of us check none of the above in the religion question. And that was really a broad exploration in relationship between these two very kind of unlikely groups at, at first glance in looking at what are the ways that alternative forms of community can support the, the world and the economy that we need. Um, and out of those relationships came a lot of explorations and a lot of shared action and um and really were rooted in our shared value of a solidarity economy of climate justice of racial justice and while that was happening um this parallel reality was unfolding in which many catholic sisters um you know catholic sisters are experiencing this big shift in demographics. The average age of a nun is 82 years old. And so this is a time of becoming smaller and um, letting go of a lot of the institutional uh, bigness that uh, Catholic religious life experienced in the 20th century. Um, and so long story short, we were hanging with the nuns and exploring these themes of spirituality and community and justice. And at the same time, they were a lot of communities were facing really big questions about what to do with their land and um, often having to let go of land that they've stewarded and loved for generations. Um, and so the Land Justice Project was created really as a way to support communities to find to create futures for their lands that are aligned with their values um, because the momentum the cultural momentum of what to do with property um, is so strong that uh, unless we kind of pause and take the time to study alternatives um, and really understand the context in which those decisions are made um it's easy to kind of make the status quo decisions about where land goes. So you talked about um, like 
shifting land ownership and why does there need to be a shift in land ownership? What is the context of land ownership in the United States? And when did it even become commodified where it became a thing of ownership? So to start, it's always important to recognize that the paradigm of private property ownership is quite new relative to human history. This is like a 600-year-old idea um, that, frankly, isn't working. <laughs> um, and that's really where the work and the kind of the educational and like, yeah, the educational work that we do really begins is let's understand first and foremost that the idea that land can be bought and sold and the way that wealth and access to that wealth to control land works in the world is a sham and completely unjust and is built on violence. Um, and that is that the result of that system has led to the degradation of the earth and of peep the oppression of people. Um, what that looks like, if we want to go into like the history of property in the United States um, and why Catholic nuns are so powerful to me in this moment to be partners in this is baked into the laws and court rulings that make up private property law in the United States is a history of colonization and blatant agendas to steal indigenous land. Um, if we want to go all the way back, uh, we could talk about the doctrine of discovery. These are three papal bulls uh, that were created in the 14th and 15th century Catholic by Catholic popes, different ones. And a papal bull is like a kind of an official declaration of the Catholic Church. And the Doctrine of Discovery is kind of this set of three papal bulls that set the groundwork for the Crusades, the, trans the transatlantic slave trade, the colonization of the Americas, um, and a lot of the rest of the world, because it said in very clear terms that Christians had the right to subdue and capture non-Christian people and that all non-Christian land was to be considered empty and open to discovery. So this is, you know, basically when those papal decrees were written, that gave countries, nation states like Spain and Portugal, the political and moral cover to begin exploring and colonizing the Americas. So when Christopher Columbus came over in 1492 or whatever, like that was with the kind of legal and political support of the Catholic Church, which at that time was an extremely powerful entity with sort of nation state type powers. Fast forward, we, uh, you know, we go to 1823, exactly 200 years ago. And the first instance in which the Supreme Court is hearing a case about a land dispute. This is a case called Johnson versus McIntosh. And 
in that ruling, the Supreme Court cites these papal bulls and literally says, so this is written into case law, United States case law, discovery is the foundation of title in European nations. When we are dealing with any deed to any property, we are operating inside a legal system that legitimizes the theft of indigenous land and that completely delegitimizes the idea that any indigenous people ever had a right to this land. So you have a system that was created by a European government that is legitimizing the theft of land in the meantime is <laughs> creating the structure of like is creating um laws and practices that are putting land and resources only into the hands of white people and that gets us to today where 98% of private land in the United States is owned by white people. Um, and that's because the sort of braid together of indigenous land theft and genocide um, together with systemic racism that has made it impossible for other families to build wealth and therefore impossible to access land. Um, and so we're living today in, yeah, in a world where 98% of private land, 95% of urban land, 98% of rural land is in the hands of, of white people and white families who have been passing this land and wealth down to their families over generations. Mm. Mm. Ooh, I just want to take a breath. Because that is so much to digest and... One big thing also is that this was all justified by the Catholic Church, that this land was owed to them in a way because of their religion. And so I'm curious, like, how do you all navigate some of these contradictions when working with people that have been so harmed by the Catholic Church, but also you're working with a spiritual community uh, who has their own practices and like knowledge and work that they're doing to heal the land. So I'm curious, like how you navigate the mistrust that may come from the people that will potentially be receiving the land versus the people that are giving it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, this is, this is the long, this is the long work. Um, I think, so first of all, I'll just say like, um, what I think is so powerful about Catholic communities coming to us in this moment and being like, we want to learn and unlearn, um, what it even means to make these decisions about property. And we want to center racial and ecological justice in determining the future of this land to have an extension of the same lineage that did this harm. Um, to me, 
is just so powerful. And I think when you get into all the complexities, all the complexities of that, the fact that, you know, um, the Catholic Church is the largest private landowner in the world, the fact that these communities of women religious have experienced oppression within the, the patriarchal structure of the Catholic Church and these communities we're working with have just like thrown down for um, justice movements across the generations. And that's not the stereotype of a nun that most people know um, and is often true and very alive in these communities. I mean, these nuns are sitting down having book groups about caste and white fragility and healing haunted histories, like doing the real work of unlearning white privilege and learning how to see systemic racism and colonization in the ways that it manifests now today and in their own histories. And so you have women who are proud of their community and their alternative way of life, reckoning with the fact that, you know, they may have run a boarding school in the past and up until recently did not understand how much that was a part of a campaign of cultural genocide uh, by the state. And it's like, it's just, it gets really complicated. And what I love about this work is like, this is where the healing happens. Yes, we are moving land and putting it in the stewardship and love of black and brown, of black and brown hands. And that in and of itself is critical to getting to a future of climate justice. But then we're, we're, but the mess of what building those relationships and doing that work of healing looks like in real time when we're inviting, you know, a local uh, indigenous person who may be a descendant of boarding school survivors into a convent of not like it. Sometimes these first interactions are like, uh, they bring up a lot of generational trauma and distrust. And um, we were doing a, a day-long workshop about land justice. And when we do these, one of the biggest goals that we have is actually to start building local relationships with Black and brown people who are stewarding land and who may be looking for land or who fight, who are fighting for land justice in that area. And so at this one um, event that we did, we invited um, a woman who, who, who's like the land that we were on was, was her tribe's ancestral land. And we invited her to come and just speak about what indigenous resurgence in that area looked like, what uh, food justice projects were taking place. And before she came the night before she came, she told her family where she was going and they had a really strong reaction. Like, don't you dare, like, don't, don't, don't do this. Um, there was like real fear and concern um, because of the generational trauma experienced by her family, by the Catholic church. Um, so by the time she arrived, like she's pretty shaken up and there's just like layers of support and care that are needed for someone like that, even to say yes, even to walk into a space that to them represents 
the cultural genocide of their people. Um, and I'm so grateful that she stayed. And by the end of the day, and I'm not saying it's always like a magical day of transformation, but in this case, by the end of the day, she's mirroring back to the nun saying, now that I understand like what you're doing, I see you as a matriarchal people and I come from a matriarchal lineage and, you know, this is the work that we can do together. And I, so, you know, and is, and, and, um, get this work is ours to do together as women who are trying to change a culture and who are invested in taking down this paradigm that is serving literally no one. Um, and so I think that's like that that's that's hard work and it's long work, especially when generational trauma and distrust is in the room with us. It reminds me of how I th how necessary it is for us to have like cross class, cross cultural relationship building and how that's like one of the pillars of the solidarity economy is shifting from just transactional to relational. And so instead of them just giving the land and saying that they're doing the work, they're actually building trust outside of their communities, which nuns are generally within their own like solitude of their community. And so for them and the indigenous people to come out of their communities and to be vulnerable with each other and to move through that trauma and harm together it's like that's how you'd want to start the process of giving land back because all of that healing is going into the soil it's like building a new foundation for that land uh, one that is not uh, rooted in harm um, but it, that is transmuting it and that's so important that you all are doing that like collective education even before approaching uh, the communities that you want to give the land to when we work with a catholic community you know we start by unpacking this broader history together and also like digging into the specific history of each piece of property and like what treaties were broken here who was displaced here um and what does that mean then about the future we want to support on this land and um so yeah i just i think what i dream about is what if that was just the standard for property discernment in the Catholic Church at large. And I love that these women are showing the way forward. And I think that, yeah, it's both, right? We want to see the material change. We want to see the land move. If it was reckoning alone, like I, that wouldn't be enough. But with that desire to actually do the work of, of reckoning and of truth telling, like I, it does feel more powerful. Um, in a way that I can't totally explain, but feels true. Well, maybe one of the ways you can explain is some of the models and you got into some of the practices uh, that you all engage in 
when going through the process of moving the land. But if you want to share any tangible examples where things have worked really well. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite um, stories to tell is, um, so right now off the coast of Long Island, there is a kelp farm, a regenerative kelp farm that is founded and led by six Shinnecock women, the Shinnecock kelp farmers. And that's happening on Catholic land. Um, the Shinnecock Bay, which is where like the ancestral lands of the Shinnecock are on much of what is now Long Island and over time and with the breaking of treaties and the building of the Long Island Railroad, the Shinnecock have been relegated to this very small, pretty like, yeah, this very small um, reservation that's also like the marshiest part of the bay. And in the meantime, the Hamptons are being built. The water is being polluted by billionaire septic systems. Right now there's algae blooms and dead zones in every bay of Long Island because of how the land has been developed and treated. And kelp farming, which is an ancestral practice of the Shinnecock, is also extremely regenerative. It filters 20 times more carbon dioxide out of the water than the same acreage of forests of forest would do. Um, and so six Shinnecock women decided we, we want to start a kelp farm. We want to be able to contribute to the healing of these waters in our own ways, in our like through our own treaty rights and ancestral practices. But they needed clean kind of coastline and infrastructure to be able to actually do it. And in that same bay, uh, off of the Shinnecock Bay, the Sisters of St. Joseph of Brentwood have a nine acre retreat center property that um, the sisters have been showing up for the Shinnecock um, in different efforts and demonstrations for years. And so there was already a relationship there. And so when one of the elders of the Shinnecock, Becky, approached the sisters and said, hey, we we want to do this. Would you help us? Um, the sisters were like, absolutely. So now there's this retreat center where one of the buildings has been turned into a hatchery where the kelp is seeded and grown. And then it's planted in the waters right off the shore. Um, and they're growing like crazy. When they responded to Becky, they were like, this isn't even our land in the first place. Like how ironic that you would have to ask us for access to your own land. Um, when we came on the scene, there was already this beautiful partnership happening in place with a very clear agreement around land access. And we're trying to say, one, how can we go even further and ensure the perpetual access to this land and ownership even of this land um, of like by the Shinnecock? And um, so our job and our sort of role in this story is we're opening up um, different case studies and examples of ways that these two could work together to ensure the continued access to land. Um, and this is something like where we're pretty clear on is uh, access is a great start. And we want to support communities to think even beyond the time of their own ownership or stewardship and think about the long term ways that we can really invest in land justice. And um, so 
they're still figuring out what that looks like. But now the Sisters of St. Joseph are part of a community of practice with six other religious communities who are also asking that question and who are going through a process with us where we uncover these case studies. We we study, we bring in folks from the Sustainable Economies Law Center or the Center for Ethical Land Transition or the Agrarian Commons. And like we we say, okay, what's possible here? And I think that's, so our role isn't like, we're not the ones, like the sisters ultimately are gonna have to decide what to do with their land. But we're coming in at this moment to say, hang on, the game, like the deck is stacked against the values you actually hold. So we've got to slow down and look at and get like, we've got to get together and get really creative about making sure one, the relationships with potential stewards who have been historically dispossessed are actually happening are actually being built and are actually being given the space for healing um, and reckoning that is needed. Otherwise, no black farming collective is going to casually find their way to like some like monastery listing on Redfin, right? Like that's not how this happens. So we slow down and say, one, how do we proactively build relationships of solidarity in relationship to how we're thinking about our land? And two, how do we get way more creative about what is possible? What's possible financially? What's possible legally? Like there's so many ways. I think sometimes people think land back looks like one thing. Um, and it's a thousand experiments. Um, you know, what one example is, you know, some religious communities are like, well, we can't afford to donate our land. So we can't participate in land back. And it's like, okay, hang on. How I, it is, po- there are enough resources in the world to make it possible for you to not have to choose between paying the healthcare bills of your elders and doing what you want to do with the land, right? Like that's the economy that we're in is that these elders who are in income sharing communities with very few workers and lots of health costs are holding land that in this day and age can become the currency needed to pay for care, right? So you have grieving communities with lots of care needs who want to do the right thing with land and say, well, we can't afford to donate our land so we can't participate in land back. So what we say is, okay, great. What is the two-year fundraising campaign that you can, can you commit to waiting two years and support like, and going like, hitting the gas with the right stewardship partner to raise the funds elsewhere with your network, with the, you know, with Catholics who would love to see land be rematriated to uh, a project or a a collective in the area, right? So it's, it's not just getting creative about the models, it's getting creative about the resources and the timelines and the ways we build relationships that in this, like, that the status quo of how property moves completely disregards. And so I feel like at the end of the day, this is like, it's like a creative learning community more than anything. Um, And that's what I love about it. And it's so important to have a network of these sisters that are learning together to like hold each other accountable, to grapple through some of the, 
contradictions like what you just pointed out of like we are elderly we need health care but we also know that we want to move this land and so what are the ways that some sisters in other places have overcame this and how can they like strategize together in more of like a coalition model so to go back to some of the reckoning that we talked about some of this historical reckoning that currently 98% of rural land in the U.S. and 95% in urban areas is owned by white people, that the Catholic Church is the largest private landowner in the world, and also around 2,000 acres of land are being developed each day in the U.S. But we are creating this other paradigm, and you all are a part of this process and when we talk about like that historical uh, reckoning and what we have inherited in terms of private land ownership and who has access to land what do we want our descendants to inherit when we think of two or five or seven generations from now what are the stories that we want to shape and tell? When I think seven, 10 generations back, like how did this belief system, like how did the understanding that like we are entitled to take things from other people and that this like understanding of domination and supremacy like that is so baked in now that I feel like white Christians can't even see it. Like, how did that happen over 10 generations? And how do we, through the practice and actions of something as material as land return and as spiritual as a reckoning, get us to 10 generations in the future where our belief system has changed, right? And I think in many cases, our indigenous elders would say, has returned, um, has both changed and transformed and returned to something I think we still know how to know deep down, which is, uh, yeah, we are like, we're all, we're, we, <laughs> I don't know how to say this in a non-cliche way. I'm like, we're all connected. We are all like tiny little extensions of this same earth and universe. And um, there are, you know, Pat McCabe, who's a Diné elder, would call it the thriving life paradigm. Um, that, that, you know, a paradigm and a belief system that is all based around the question, am I contributing to more life thriving or not? And I think we're missing out on so much of that wholeness. And um, yeah, um, so I'm like, what does the legal like infrastructure future of like no private land ownership look like? I don't know. The puzzle pieces are on the table and I don't quite know what that looks like, but what feels clear to me is we are slowing down as a species and saying this system has failed. We need to change and we need to heal. And it, is yeah um we yeah we need to turn toward healing and care of the earth and of each other um and that's yeah that's that's the deeper promise i think of this work that 
I hope we're walking toward and I pray we are. Yeah, where reckoning becomes the norm. And I think through that, like what is, like you said, a very spiritual process that people can tap into this remembrance of how we are more the same than we are different when our identities start to dissolve. Remember, right? Like literally remembering is like the... (laughs) The remaking whole, the like bringing back into the body. Um, Yeah, I think Mm -hmm. important part of the work. Definitely. And before we go, if you want to offer some practical ways that people can tap into the work whether it is for landowners or land stewards or others that are actively, um, that want to actively support shaping the vision of shared land ownership? Thing one, I would say, is if you are a landowner, learn the story of your land. Um, Take the time to... Not just know like who lived here, but like how did you come to hold the title and control over this land and what were the historical um, decisions, laws, acts of dispossession and genocide that led to that um, in in many cases. Um, Just like start understanding the water that you're swimming in is is one thing. I also am just like in love with the land tax movement um, that a lot of indigenous organizations or tribes um, are, yeah, stepping into inviting settlers who live on their ancestral land to make a financial contribution. Um, I like Sogorate Land Trust has the Shumi land tax in the Bay Area. There's a lot of examples, but um, Segurate then, so settlers can opt into paying a voluntary tax to acknowledge that they're living on indigenous land and, um, yeah, and acknowledge that by like contributing to Segurate and then Segurate uses that to do indigenous resurgence projects and efforts, language revitalization and purchasing land that then, they protect and steward. Um, so I just think that's a beautiful movement. So if you can look up and see if there is a land tax by you that you could participate in or get one started. And that leads to build relationships in your area, um, especially to, again, for this is more on the landowner side um, or people that are looking to participate in land justice is like you can't until you know the needs of the people who are fighting for it. Um, so like show up, right? The Shinnecock kelp farmers, like that started because the sisters showed up to a demonstration against the development of burial grounds that the Shinnecock were fighting in the Hamptons. I think for people that already identify as part of the land justice movement or stewards that are um, either have land or are trying to gain access to land. One thing I'm really interested in, and I Neil Tapar from... Um, minnow really put me onto this is like 
we should be having harder conversations with people who fund land justice and put the heat on for like, um, yeah, like pressuring funders to give more aggressively to spend down their wealth. Um, I just feel like my invitation to the movement is like, yeah, how, how can we, um, put more collective pressure on people who are resourcing climate justice as a whole to do that more aggressively? Cause it is 2023 y'all. And like, we need to do the work now and, communities you know the the people that are out there building these dreams and stewarding the land like they need the money now and so I'm like can we get more aggressive about asking foundations like what percentage of your endowment are you spending every year and why is it so damn low um like I think I, I just get excited about that so that's like a more vague you know that's not something you can google and like do tomorrow but I'm like let's do that together everybody let's get smarter and really work as an ecosystem to resource this work now. Thank you so much, Brittany. This was so good. I loved I loved this conversation and yeah, very grateful for it. Even if you aren't a landowner or engage in land-based work, you are also a steward. Consider, how can you build a relationship to the land you're on? Unearth the hidden histories, observe your natural environment, pay attention to how the land is a reflection of you. How do you choose to honor or give back to the land today? There are many ways you can be in reciprocity with us. If you are or know of a collective model that aligns, let's connect so we can spotlight the story. Share episodes, especially with your friends and family who aren't aware of collective models but are unfulfilled with this economy. With your support, we can continue archiving the stories that aren't being elevated but are necessary for our collective elevation. <laughs>